0: For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins.
1: Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read.
0: And Malcolm Mitchell.
1: When I scored a touchdown,
2: they probably put my name in the newspaper. People probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat?
0: Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards Ceremony at Amplify.com slash Star Awards Celebrations. That's Amplify.com slash Star Awards Celebration. All one word. We've had an amazing season so far, and with this season of gratitude, we want to extend our appreciation to all the educators who listen to the podcast and work in classrooms every day impacting students across the world. We also want to extend our appreciation to our guests this season, who allow us to unveil the meaning behind the research, expand our knowledge, and dive further into the science of reading. We understand how important it is for students to review and extend what they've learned. And as students of the science of reading ourselves, we're going to do just that. We'll be extending and deepening our knowledge, and we can't wait to share the journey with you. We've come to the end of another great season on Science of Reading the podcast. This season, we hit over a million downloads, and we're well on our way to two million. We're so thankful to you, our listeners, and are excited about the guests we're lining up for season five. I mean, season four's lineup was like a science of reading hall of fame. Sue Pimetel, Julie Washington, Nadine Gab, and others who continue to add to the body of knowledge we call reading science. They're helping us all learn more deeply about a range of topics related to literacy development. It's also that time of year when we're all a little more reflective and grateful for those who influence our lives. And I don't know about you, but my gratitude extends to these amazing guests who are helping us become more informed about the complexities and realities of learning to read. Here at Science of Reading the Podcast, we thought it would be a perfect time to reflect on this past season and offer our gratitude for insights we've all gained because of the generosity of our guests. Listeners, you might not realize this, but each guest graciously gives us their time. No guest has ever asked us for compensation. They share freely and willingly so that you can further develop your own knowledge base and use that knowledge to impact your students and school communities. So let's step back and reflect on this season of great learning. It was a tough start to the year with the effects of the pandemic looming and the future uncertain. Shout out to all the teachers who welcomed students back to a changing environment with open arms and the determination to provide the teaching students needed to get on with the learning. During our episode with Sue Pimetel, founding partner of Student Achievement Partners and lead author of the Common Core State Standards for ELA, we talked about the pandemic and how it uncovered some instructional issues we maybe didn't think about pre-pandemic. Listen in on the
3: one hand, the pandemic uh, led us to the fact that time is is a scarce commodity. It probably was always, but especially now with school closures and things in and out and virtual learning and all the like right so there was that. Then there was a mm-hmm. sense of the the maybe silver lining, which is ooh. Let's it pulled the curtain back on the fact that we have some kids that are doing really well and there are other students who are not being served and with this disruption we had to do things differently so are there other ways for us to do things differently mm-hmm. and um, so when we were looking at that we, we had been in sort of our, 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 our cone or our silo and student achievement partners on like high quality instructional materials which we still believe in but there was also this sort of force out there this um new energy around personalization which we really hadn't done much with which we really hadn't looked at and we said Mm. well is there a way for personalization um to work with high quality instructional materials to the benefit of students so in other words the personalization piece could accelerate the literacy accelerators and then also, this new urgency around equity um, yeah. and this sense that um, we can't, we can't, you know, and that's in the instructional materials and in any personalization. We know some kids are getting the good stuff and some kids are not. And are there are there ways for us to really attend to that? So there was a sense that there were three parts coming together, or really two parts coming together, undergirded by equity, which is uh what is the core instructional program and what is personalization and how can they work together because there was a sense that personalization was over here you either personalized or you had a core and you never brought them together hmm. and and i think you know when we had our original talk i said i was a personalization skeptic I you
0: was. were <laughs> I, was.
3: I was but i changed i i, I, I provided it's provided it's done in a way that supports and advances the right content and other things as well.
0: I am also so grateful that she introduced us to the concept of literacy accelerators. If you haven't read the report, Reading as Liberation, an Examination of the Research Base, you might want to carve out some time this holiday season to dig in. Here's a quick overview from Sue.
3: Call them literacy accelerators because they have a massive, and I mean a massive research base. Uh, behind them. So what you need to know, and don't get scared about reading the report, it, 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 it summarizes, Takes it was 500 studies. 500 studies, right? Yes. So um, there is support for foundational skills, which we've known for gobs of years now from right. the National Reading Panel report. Onward. Um, the importance of knowledge, um, building students' knowledge, which, if you if you look at the research, has been around for decades as well. So all of that research, how do we come to this? What do they know? What do we know about knowledge? Expanding vocabulary, which is very closely tied to building knowledge, but really important to focus on. And then we also know, and some of this is maybe Some of this is newer research, and some of this is also hearing from uh, college professors and the like about how important it is for students to be able to write about what they read Mm. in a cogent manner, and that when we do, when I have to write about something that I've read, I have to know it better to communicate to you. I have to think through how do I how do I say this to you in a way that you can understand it, and that means also both in discussion. So it actually makes me understand better. And then there's this whole sort of. Um, reading comprehension, which sort of encompasses it all. But it really is about being able to comprehend um, increasingly complex texts um, and to be able to do that in a way that I can draw inferences, knowing what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to, what are the key details that make that. And students need practice with that. They need a lot of practice and support with that. So those are the five. Foundational skills, knowledge, vocabulary, writing and communicating about what you're reading, and then this notion of Uh, reading, uh, reading comprehension of, of complex texts.
0: So if you missed the episode or if you've forgotten about why Sue is no longer a personalized learning skeptic, you'll have to check it out. As with all our guests, she has so many interesting things to tell us. My next big shout out is to Dr. Lauren Trackman and Dr. Patricia Alexander, professors in the Department of Human Development and Quantitative Methodology within the College of Education at the University of Maryland College Park. Our conversation explores ways in which teaching, reading, and print remains vital, even in the digital world. Listen in on a brief clip where they discuss some differences between print and digital and what we need to learn more about.
1: I think the biggest takeaway is that students treat digital text differently as of now. They are not engaging with the text in the same manner as they are with a printed source. So that includes things such as rereading uh, important sentences or key details, or even as our more recent research has looked at, when they look at a picture and its caption in the text. It occurs differently as soon as you switch to a digital medium.
4: That's right, mm. that's right. uh, yeah, I think the time issue has been a fairly consistent one. I think this issue about losing sense of, there's a physical sense of where things are in a book. Yeah. One of the reasons, especially with the younger readers, the more that they're kind of, um, I think influenced by the the placement of information that you have a lot of difficulties in that sort of way when you're uh, moving to digital. The uh, the digital too, and I was thinking about this based on the fact that, you know, though, those of us who have been in literacy for years know how important it is for parents to read to their children when they're young. Yeah. Right. Yep. The interesting thing about it is the in, uh, um, a lot of kids who have this wonderful experience we'll talk about the intimacy of that experience you you sit close to the parent you're holding the books together you know you can point to things as you go through and that sort of thing and there's a there's a physical sense to a book that is lost when you're reading on an ipad um the other thing we know is reading of that kind of intimacy often occurs in evenings just before a child goes to sleep
0: Mm
2: -hmm. and
4: we know now from the research that even the lighting on digital is very, is, is disruptive to like REM sleep. It yep. really affects you. And so that this is not even good for the child in some way uh, neurologically when they're starting to read. So there's a lot of things that are being picked up about this. Now let's be clear the, the kind of suggestions we would make both to parents and teachers, there is the fact that digital is not going anywhere. It is it is an expedient sort of thing. Right. Um, it's it's uh, convenient. I can't carry a library with me when I travel as, as you do. So what do I do? I have everything loaded up on my um, my iPad. But but what are we trying to figure out? Is under what conditions is it better to read in paper than digitally? And how do we even improve what if you're going to read digitally? What is it you should do to improve your comprehension?
0: I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this fascinating work. And in the meantime, re-listen to this episode and think about how you approach print and digital reading differently. But wait, though, can you even believe that we were able to grab some of Dr. Julie Washington's time? Dr. Washington is currently a professor in the School of Education at the University of California, Irvine, and a speech-language pathologist, a very busy woman. In this episode, we cover a lot of ground related to linguistic differences, and the first question I asked was how language variety relates to the simple view of reading.
1: You know, that hasn't been something that's really been looked at systematically, but if we think about how One of the things we have learned about um, African-American kids when they're reading is that the, similar to bilingual kids, actually, that the cognitive load that they are faced with is pretty difficult. And so we see that what we mean by that is they have a lot of work to do, to Mm -hmm. even get to the text. Mm -hmm. And so coming from a language variety that's so different from... um, what you were gonna be asked to do in text is still English, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of differences in morphology and phonology and syntax that kids really have to um, kind of bring together and integrate in order to become readers. You know, an early study that we did um, when I was at Michigan, we used the great oral reading test. So we had kids reading out loud because we wanted to see how dialect impacted reading. Mm-hmm. And so these kids were eating, reading this text aloud. And of course they were using dialect, even though it was standard English text. But the most interesting thing was that as they got to the penultimate paragraph, just as they were going to end the test because it was getting harder, they abandoned trying to code switch. And so <laughs> there was a lot of dialect. And so what it meant for them was that in order to hold on to the text and the meaning they had to abandon trying to uh, maintain the structure. And so it was interesting, but what it means for assessments is the accuracy scores were lower because now there's all this dialect in there and it's not a true representation of what was on the page. The fluency scores were lowered because Mm. now we've got you kind of slowing down and trying to figure out the text And then there was the comprehension scores. They couldn't answer the questions. And and so what we saw with that study was that these kids were doing a lot of work to get to the true representation of general American English in text. And that in so doing, they were um, using up their resources. Hmm. And so when you got to the end goal, which was meaning and comprehension, We lost that. So we saw kids who were really able to decode the words and read the words on the page, but who had expended so much um, energy doing that, that they couldn't answer the questions.
0: There's so much information in this episode. It's a must listen. She helps us understand the importance of embracing language variety and to see that variety as a difference, not a deficit. Listen to her challenge.
1: We have a tendency in this country to pathologize differences. And so (laughs) when we see a child or an adult who's doing something different and they're struggling, we assume that the struggle is a result of the difference. That's pathologizing the difference. And so we don't want to do that here. Um, Even if dialect is contributing to a struggle, it doesn't mean that it's a disorder. It just means it's a difference that we have to pay attention to. It means we need to do something different. And by me, it means by we, I mean, teachers, yeah, um, educators, we need to do something differently. And the child is doing something in addition to their peers. And yeah. so we're all like um, doing a little bit more work to help this child get to this standard um, in reading. And Um, but that's not a disorder. It's not an impairment. It is a difference.
0: This season, we also tackled how to support our learners who are just acquiring the English language. I am so grateful for Elsa Cardenas Hagen, who joined us to share her depth of expertise on just that topic. She's a bilingual speech language pathologist Certified academic language therapist and the director of Valley Speech Language and Learning Center in Brownsville, Texas. If you're not familiar with her work, this episode outlines what she's learned and accomplished during her tenure. The episode ranges from important reports and resources to help support English language learners, how structured literacy is a highly effective approach as they acquire the English language. And practical strategies teachers can employ, even if they
5: don't share the same language as their students. First of all, know about know about the English language and teach it. Uh, you know, teach it in a way that really does cover all those aspects of um, of developing. You know, not only those foundational skills, but thinking about you know the. The, the, the language, the comprehension, the world knowledge. But the other thing is, like I said, you know, when you have these students that speak these other languages. So I go and I investigate. Okay. Let me think about and you know, and families are our partners as well. And oftentimes, you know, that's what I say. Mm-hmm. They are our resource. And so as we, they're intimidated by the school setting. And, um, so let's bring them in and let's you know really get them to help us and um, to understand you know their child better but it really does take us the time if you spend time up front understanding more and then it makes you being able to deliver then the children will respond because they had something to connect to and i just think about that you know we speak they have all these different languages well you know, I can be prepared like, oh, OK. And maybe there's not a connection to be made. Maybe there, that sound doesn't exist. But is there something that's similar? And I always I talk about in the book, I talk about approximations and and how you can get around uh, that as well. And and the other thing I, I talk about is, you know, I'm also from the point of, you know, uh, speech and language how children process the sounds and how they produce the sounds will be how they read and write and spell them. And so mm. don't take in the classroom, uh, Don't we don't want the, you know, the misarticulation. It's one thing to have an accent accent's fine but not incorrect production so i've got to get them to be able to discriminate uh those sounds and produce those sounds and so i actually you know have in there and i teach teachers these are the sounds made with the lips these are the sounds pushing the tongue up these are the sounds in the back right mm. you're you know so that's important as well and don't be afraid because you don't know the language you will be amazed so what kind of connection can I make at the sound level? What kind of connection can I make at the word level? What kind of connection can I make at the vocabulary level? And what connection can I make to their language and culture children love reading and seeing themselves in books and that makes them more engaged that's awesome mm-hmm. and um, I think that's another way that we celebrate and we also validate so that the children feel comfortable and they feel acknowledged um, I think that that's important as well uh, and there's so many different uh, books available and now with you know technology everything's at our fingertips it's amazing um the other thing that we know the other strategies that we know that helps English learners is you know quickly having those visuals for sometimes they were complex things we quickly found a short video one one thing was a mime I remember that um classroom and I was like oh just teacher just get in there and just show them it in action they you know this is what a mime is this is what they do isn't that fun um and we pretend, can we get up and act like, you know, we're a mime. And so it's getting them engaged. And, you know, in, in the world of, you know, of working with uh, uh, ESL, you know, we know those visuals help, we know a quick demonstration will help. All of that is just as concrete as we can make it. The other thing that we take advantage and I want to talk a little bit about vocabulary and and I give the example of the simple word of run and oftentimes uh and Isabel Beck writes about uh in her book about you know words that are basic common everyday words and um and then words that are academic words and words that are academic, mm-hmm. but they're very narrow in their scope. But what I want to say is for English learners, you're going to work on the academic words, the tier two words that, you know, um, are recommended. But we also need to address tier one words in more depth and the simple word of run. All right. I came up with 45 different definitions all right so you run your mouth you know all these sayings right you run amok uh, Uh, you know you run a temperature right you have a dog run right and so you run um, you run the governor's campaign um so so when we think about even simple words can have so many multiple meanings and as students who are learning English as their second language, they haven't had the same opportunities. So let's bring those opportunities in there. And let's not only know about, you know, the, what they call the breadth of words, but also their depth.
0: Check out the show notes for that episode, also included here, and gift yourself a copy of her book, Literacy Foundations for English Learners. At one point, I had three copies at my house. We'll be right back.
6: My name is Rachel McCauley, and I have been passionate about teaching reading for the past 23 years, ever since I left the credential program at San Diego State University. I've been teaching first grade for about 23 years and just moved to second grade. And I've been fascinated by how children learn to read. It's almost like magic. Sometimes I wonder if they even need me, if they can learn the skills on their own. I thought I was an expert on teaching reading. I had gone to write group trainings. I had followed the philosophy of Fontes and Pinel. I had done my own research, read countless articles. The Science of Reading podcast has reignited my passion. I was kind of laying low for a number of years. As I said, I thought I was doing everything well. And I probably have done some really great things in my reading instruction. I certainly had many students that were at or above grade level when they left me. But now, after following the Science of Reading podcast, I think I could do it better. I've been using it to formulate ideas of how to improve my reading instruction with my students. And it's not an easy feat, because I'm having to rethink a lot of things I believed were the best practices. The science of reading has been very influential in that. In fact, it's even planted the seed of the possibility of me entering a master's program so I could become a real official expert. I love teaching reading. And I want to learn everything I can about it so that when those students leave and go to the upper grades and the reading gets harder, they won't slip behind. The Science of Reading podcast and the Facebook page has been instrumental in reshaping my thinking.
0: Finally, a great big thank you to Dr. Nadine Gab, Associate Professor of Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Her work focuses on typical and atypical learning trajectories from infancy to adulthood. Listen in as she talks a little bit about that work
2: work where we are interested in developmental trajectories, right? So um, instead of just, you know, taking one point in time and looking at like the brain or the behavior or the reading skill of a group of children compared to another group of children or individuals, um, we are more interested in the development uh, of skills and the development of language, pre-reading, reading skills development of the brain and how they all relate to each other and what's the role of the environment in those. So uh, a lot of the work we do is follow kids over many, many years and then see you know, what are their trajectories in terms of uh, development of these skills as well as the brain. And when does the trajectories diverge between the children who subsequently struggle with learning to read versus the ones who are not struggling with learning to read. Um, And so what we could show is that some of the brain alterations that uh, many different research labs have uh, reported uh, for individuals who um, struggle with learning to read uh, versus their peers seem to be present uh, prior to the first start of you know from reading instruction so these kids step into the first day of kindergarten or first grade with a less optimal brain for learning to read and so that really is the core argument for finding these kids earlier right so for the longest time we didn't know do they have maybe a different brain because they're struggling on a daily basis or do they come into the classroom with some of these, you know, brain alterations that make it more difficult to learn mm-hmm. to read? And it seems to be a combination of the two. But there's definitely some aspects that are there prior to learning to read. In terms of the behavior, um, many, many different research studies, uh, um, not just us, and, and many, you know, many years before us have uh, identified phonological awareness, so the ability to manipulate the sounds of language as one of the early behavioral predictors. For phonological or phonemic awareness, it's important to keep in mind that it's a developmental trajectory, right? So it's not like black-white, like you mm-hmm. have it or not, but it mm-hmm. starts with rhyming and then you know, matching first sounds, you know taking away sounds, adding sounds, et cetera. Another uh big behavioral predictor is pseudo word repetition where you give a uh you know made up word to the child and ask the child to repeat it back and you want to make sure that this made up word somehow falls into the rules of the language that the you know the child is learning to read in so uh, for instance, in english um, uh, as well as rapid automatized naming, which is a uh, you know predictor of reading fluency and can often just give you an idea of like general automaticity and retrieval uh, speed uh, of a child and then. Uh, The other three important pieces, you know, as early predictors are letter knowledge and letter sound knowledge, as well as this oral uh, piece or language piece uh, that we discussed that, you know, develops in this first four or five years of life before even the first day of reading instruction. And that's like vocabulary as well as oral listening comprehension.
0: Many of us know Dr. Gab from her advocacy for paying attention to risk factors in children that present themselves very early. She provides some suggestions for teachers to help identify those risk factors.
2: So there has been a really great uh, movement in the last couple of years uh, uh, related to screening for reading disabilities. So there's lots of new legislation, um, some well-designed, some not so well-designed. Um, and so there's been really great tools. So you can, for instance, uh, go to the National Center for Improving Literacy and look at their tools chart. They can really uh, help you to find a good screener that is, um, you know, is evidence-based and has good validity and is reliable and has good um, classification accuracy. Um, but... Um, You also want to think about the whole approach, right? So you you don't want to just screen the whole world and then or your whole district and then don't do anything about it. So you need to really keep in mind like good screening needs to be followed by good evidence response to screening. And so that's important to keep uh, in mind as well. In addition to this, is um, that there is a lot of uh, problems that you know some of the screeners or screening approaches have. Like, what are we screening for? Are we screening for reading comprehension or word reading or uh, oral language or fluency? Uh, we also want to make sure that the screener matches the student population and, you know, uh, uh, involve all stakeholders in the screening process. So administrators, special educators, general educators, caregivers need to be on one page and need to understand what is the screening process and how is screening different from, you know, diagnosis. Uh, um And um, there's, you know, a whole bunch of other things uh, related to, uh, you know, how you should screen. Uh, But a good approach is to find a good screener, uh, a good evidence-based response to screening, and most importantly, have really good tier one uh, instruction, really good uh, curriculum implementation that addresses uh, in the classroom already some of the Uh, uh, important components that these kids are struggling with. So you don't want to have a disconnect between what they are getting in intervention if they're getting intervention and what they're getting in the classroom.
0: And Dr. Gab leaves us with this thought regarding the importance of helping students become proficient readers.
2: we should not forget that uh the development of reading proficiency is a public health issue right so every child has the right to learn to read well and and literacy is a widely recognized determinant of health outcomes and is associated with so many indices of economic success and vocational social and academic success there's so many implications for mental health um and so i think you know, we just need to work together and, and uh, make sure that, you know, the science of reading, which is a vast majority, a big body of research and not a philosophy and not a, you know, a, a isolated curriculum or isolated approach uh, is, you know, uh, implemented in the classroom so that every child can experience the joy of learning to read.
0: Well, I guess that is just a mic drop. Thanks again to all our guests and to you, our listeners. Are you grateful for a particular episode? We would love to hear about it. Send us a brief audio with details, and we might just feature you on a future episode. Thanks for listening and keep your feedback coming. Want to learn more? Be sure to stay connected by subscribing to your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. We also invite you to join us for an amazing three days of professional development at the nation's premier literacy conference, Plain Talk. It's taking place in New Orleans, February 9th through the 11th, 2022. Top literacy experts will be sharing inspiration and research to improve literacy instruction, manage change and implement effective strategies to help all students succeed. We're bringing our Science of Reading podcast to the conference and asking educators to visit our recording booth to tell their own Science of Reading story to be featured in an upcoming episode. To learn more about the events and to register, visit www.cdl.org backslash plain talk. We'll also include details in the show notes of this episode. I hope to see you there.